Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God. Teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with freedom through faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hello everyone everywhere. This is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Amen. We're going to start a new series today, looking at the judgment of God. Now, I know that is, uh, you know, oh, we're Christians, we're escaping the judgment of God. Well, that's true. We're escaping the wrath of God. doesn't say we're going to escape the judgment of God. Judgment will be poured out on a nation. Judgment will be poured out on the earth. Even Jeremiah and the prophets had to go through judgment. But God protected them, provided for them. And we're going to look at all that, how God will take care of his people. Amen. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get started. Father, in the name of Jesus, whose we are, whom we serve, we come before you this day, thanking you, praising you, for salvation, for there's no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. Glory to God. Bless us this day, Lord. Bless this Bible study. May you have your way as your Holy Spirit leads to accomplish your purpose. For your word goes forth and does not return to you void. It accomplishes what you please and it prospers where you send it. And we give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. I got a little frog in my voice this morning, but that's okay. Glory to God. We're still here. We're going strong. And Jesus is Lord. Glory to God. Shout amen, somebody. Hallelujah. Repeat these words after me. We're going to recite here our profession of faith. Lay that solid foundation upon which we can build this Bible study. I'm getting excited because I want to get into it. Amen. So just let's go right into this. Repeat these words after me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in his only Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he shall come soon to judge the living and the dead. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the church is the body of Christ. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I believe in life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. If you have your Bible, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. Now, we've already said that we're going to be looking at the judgment of God. And just some reminders here. The Genesis account of the flood is given in simple language. It's very carefully detailed. It's precise. It's repeated several times. In fact, if you're reading through the seventh, cha the seventh chapter, you might ask yourself why you keep thinking you're hearing the same things over and over again. Things that were said in chapter 6 will be said two or three more times in chapter 7. And this is typical in terms of the Hebrew style for the sake of emphasis. And really, it's true in any language. Amen. This is the great judgment, the greatest judgment of all judgments in history so far of the world. The lessons here are, are very dramatic, and nobody needs to miss them. Repetition is designed at each point in order to add further detail while rehearsing something that's already been revealed. The passage before us is very simple, careful, precise, and repeated over and over. It's the historical record of God's destruction of the entire planet Earth and all of its inhabitants, except those few who he protected in the ark. And there are so many things we can said about this flood and what it teaches, and we're going to look at some of them right now. Amen. One thing that's very obvious, though, is that God is not primarily concerned with environmentalism. <laughs> Amen. He's not a tree hugger. Oh, he loves nature and he created all the trees. But when it comes to judgment, he washed it all away. We cannot even fathom the energy or the power or the wisdom or the might or the intelligence and the design that it took to create the original universe as well as the original earth. 1,650 years or so, from what I could calculate, after it was created, God destroyed the entire thing. And out of that flood came essentially a new earth, the one we have today, a new humanity, new animal life, new plant life, as magnificent as God's creation is, as reflective of his glory as it is, he would not hesitate to completely destroy it all because of sin and bring forth a new earth. Amen? Righteousness is all God cares about. The physical world is not his concern. The spiritual world is. The Lord destroyed this planet once and then remade it. That's recorded in the book of Genesis. And he's going to do it again. And that's recorded in the book of Revelation. Amen. So the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible begins with the destruction of the earth and it ends with the destruction of the earth. In Genesis, we have a new earth being formed. And in Revelation, we have a new earth being formed. 
Amen. Hallelujah. That's the eternal state that's being created. And all that simply to rehearse what I said a moment ago. God is not an environmentalist. His concern has to do with the spiritual, not the physical. Glory to God. He has concerns about righteousness and sin, not about the environment. If necessary, he'll destroy the entire planet. He'll destroy the universe where his righteousness is at stake. Amen. Beyond that, we learn some things about God from the account of the flood. Everything, every word, every story in the Bible really discloses God's nature. It's the testimony of God. It is his self-revelation. It's the revealing, the disclosure of his character. In fact, you cannot read one chapter in the Bible, you cannot read one passage in the Bible without being exposed in some way or another to the character of God. And here in the story of the flood, we learn much more about God. This is a great biblical account for us to build what theologians call proper. That's the study of God himself. Our Heavenly Father is revealing himself to us. What we learn in the account of the flood is that God has absolute, divine, supernatural power over all of creation. And he has complete freedom to act on it as he wants to. God makes the rules, not man. Consequently, God also has complete control of history and everything in it. And we also learn from the flood that God clearly can and does distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. That God is supremely capable of sorting out who should be delivered and who needs to be destroyed. We also learn from the flood that God is patient, that he's gracious, that he warns sinners of the coming judgment before he brings that judgment. But when that judgment comes, we also learn that God judges sin in a deadly fashion. Amen? Such judgment seen in the flood is the most massive, comprehensive judgment of God that has occurred in history. But the greater one, the greater destruction, the greater judgment is yet to come when Jesus returns to this earth. But that's not the only judgment. The flood and the past and certainly the soon coming of Christ is not the only judgment in the future. There are judgments going on all the time as God expresses with his anger and his wrath on sinners. But when you look at the flood, you learn that God can judge in very deadly anger. Amen? Amen. Ellen Ross 
writes this, quote, Such a judgment protects every succeeding word of grace from any kind of innocuousness. God's gracious redemption, he writes, is meaningful in the light of that judgment. If you can get a grip on the flood, if you can understand the flood, if you can really comprehend that God destroyed the billions of people that populated the earth and only saved eight people, then you get the idea he's not kidding when he talks about the next judgment because there's a record of him having done it in the past. Every tender warning, every word of mercy, every expression of compassion, every act of grace, every extended breath within the framework of God's patience should not be treated lightly or trivialized as, you know, you do something wrong. Oh, God's mercy endures forever. Yes, it does. But God's judgment is coming soon too. And just as I said when we started, we also learned that God is most concerned about the sin that's in the earth right now. And it's going unchecked. As a matter of fact, it's being promoted, flaunted in his face. 30 years ago, you did not have homosexual gay pride parades in every city and town. If they were sinning, they knew they were sinning. But now, not only do they flaunt it, it's being promoted by the government. And if you speak against it like I'm doing now, you, the Christian, can be persecuted for it. You, the the government and the sinners demand you recognize their right to sin. And you have no place to speak against it. And yet we say, God's mercy endures forever. Uh, Let's read the book of Genesis in chapter 7. What concerns God is sin in his universe, in his world. Amen? And so no matter how you cut it, God has sentenced this planet to a short life. The first time, around before the flood, as we said, as near as I can tell, about 1,650 years. The second time, we've been at it now for 4,500 years. Some would say, some a little more, a little less. doesn't matter. The business of a disposable planet, as I've said, is sentenced to a very short life. It's a very brief theater in the midst of eternity on which the drama of redemption is being played out so that God can display his grace and his glory and gain a bride for his son. But God does not hesitate to destroy in a flash when, in his mind, iniquity is full. And God will not always tolerate sinners. Just as he said in the pre-flood society, he says, my spirit will not always strive with man. God will not always be patient. (coughs) Excuse me. 
have to keep taking sips of water. God will not always be patient. He will not always be tolerant. And when judgment comes, it is going to be harsh, it's going to be swift, and it's going to be total. The verdict is incontestable. There is no court of appeals. These sinners that flout their sin in the face of God, and when God declares judgment, they cannot go to the Supreme Court of the United States and say, didn't you say that we are protected there is no court of appeals when God issues his judgment. Amen? He did it once, and I'm telling you, he's about to do it again. But until he does it again, we live in a time of grace, a very small sliver of time that's left. It's called grace. But he has an end to his patience, and he will repeal his patience. He will replace his grace with his anger and with his wrath and the destruction of this entire planet is soon coming. Now, all of these profound realities about the character of God, the nature of God, his redemption purpose are all demonstrated in the flood. I literally could take each of these and develop an entire sermon out of each one because there's so much there. And I have to go quickly today just to get in this overview, if you want to call it that. I just want to leave you here as we finish today to think about them. And as we approach Genesis chapter 7, the things that I've just said to you will unfold to you and become very apparent. You're going to see them. This is not a passage that you need to outline. This is a narrative, a historical narrative. And we're just going to go right through it. Amen? I don't have any illusions about getting where I want to today. I'm not even going to tell you where that is. I'd like to get to verse 1. <laughs> Glory to God. <clears throat> All of that is the introduction. Glory to God. Go to Genesis chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Lord said unto Noah, Come, you and all your house into the ark, for you I've seen righteous before me in this generation. 120 years have passed. 120 years since God had said to Noah way back in chapter 3, verse 13. I'm sorry. Well, God said in verse 13, The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy this earth. Amen. Where is it here? Uh, da, 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 da. Noah, Noah, Noah. Here we go. Verse chapter 6. That's in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 13. Glory to God. And uh, let me add that to my note here so I don't forget. Okay. So. 120 years have passed since God said to Noah in chapter 6, verse 13, 
The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. It had been 120 years that had gone by. And then he says in verse 14, you get to make an ark. And then he gave him, as you remember, all the features and the dimensions for making basically a rectangle. A barge, if you want to call that, that's going to float them above the judgment. Now remember these words that I'm using. Okay, All of this came about because of the sin in the world. And you go back to the beginning of chapter 6, and we realize in the first few verses, men were involved with demons. We further find out there was only wickedness in verse 5. The wickedness of man was so great on the earth that every intent and thought of his heart was only evil continuously. Back in verse 3, My spirit will not always strive with man forever, because he is just flesh. And then comes this respite. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. And from the time that God was fed up with man, from the time that God told Noah he was going to destroy the entire world, from the time he told him to build this boat, it'd be 120 years before the flood would actually come. That was the time of God's grace, his mercy, his compassion, his time of patience, the time of the message of forgiveness, the time of salvation. It was also for the time, or it was also the time for Noah to build the ark. It took him 120 years or whatever part of that was necessary. He and his family were building the ark. All the time, Noah was absolutely obedient. He was simply told by God that God was going to drown the entire world. He never quibbled about it. He never argued with God about it. He never brought questions and misgivings and doubts to God. He just obeyed. He did, verse 22 says at the end of chapter 6, according all that God commanded him, so he did. He was building. He was building an ark for his family. And as he went along, according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he was a preacher of righteousness. Remember that. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Right living before God. In other words, there were people coming up to him saying, What are you doing, boy? Why are you building this huge gopher wood boat in the middle of the desert? What are you doing? Why are you doing that? There's no ocean around here. He might have said to him, it's going to rain, but more likely, since they had never seen rain, they had seen some form of evaporation and mist, but not rain. He was telling them God was going to drown every one of them in water. You're all going to drown. The entire earth is going to be covered. The entire planet. And he and those who were with him in the ark were going to float above it all. Everyone else was going to die. Some of these people could have believed. 
and said, what do we got to do to be saved? He could have told them how to build the ark, or he could have said, you can come on board with us. We're going to have plenty of room. But nobody, listen to me, 120 years, every day he was building that ark either gathering supplies for it or assembling it according to the instructions God had given him. Every single day, he was giving his testimony about what is about to come. He was prophesying with every hammer pounding, every nail put in, every time they cut a piece of wood, every time they assembled something, he was preaching the gospel that God's judgment is coming. Giving everybody a chance to realize by looking at the way he was living his life, to look at how he was obeying God, to look at what, and listen and ponder what he was saying God was about to do. Every person had a chance to repent. But instead, they mocked him, made fun of him, much like they do Christians today. And nobody believed him. It was only his wife and his three sons and their three wives that believed and helped building the ark. And after 120 years, the ark was completed. His grandfather, Methuselah, had died. Remember, his name signified descending forth. That's what it means. And is often connected with the flood. So that in the year he dies, the flood comes. Methuselah is either on his deathbed or is dead. Because it says in the year now, and God says, Noah, enter the ark. In the same year that Methuselah died, God tells Noah, enter the ark. You and all of your household, enter the ark. Now remember, the ark is basically a box. It wasn't built like a ship with sloped sides and all that. It was a box, a rectangle. It had no sail. It had no oars. It had no rudder. It had no pilot. It had no navigator. It had no navigation equipment. It didn't even have a steering wheel because God was going to pilot that box. It was not like a ship with a pointed bow that's propelled through the water. It had no way to be propelled. It had no sails, no oars, nothing. In fact, it was longer and by cubic feet bigger than any boat ever known to be built until later in the 19th century when great ships were first able to be built that size because they were being made of steel. And it was built on classic seaworthiness lines. The length had a 6 to 1 ratio, the length and width, and it provided it with maximum stability, engineers say. Because it was a rectangle, it was more stable than if it had a narrow bow. It also had, because it was a rectangle, one-third more capacity than a ship of that size would have with sloped sides. About 100,000 square feet, or 1.5 million cubic feet. 
Amen. It was a massive boat. It had thousands of compartments on the three floors. It could carry all the animals. And you remember looking in, uh, looking at the size of it, or taking a medium-sized animal, maybe a little larger than the average animal would be, probably a lot larger, a sheep. It could carry about 125,000 sheep, which would certainly be double or more than double what was needed, the size for all the existing species. And this is a great act of faith on Noah's part. For 120 years, to say that God is going to destroy the entire planet, you have to have faith. Because you ain't even seen that yet. It hadn't happened yet. There was no indication that God had said anything to him for those 120 years. He may have. May have come down and said, oh, you need to make that bow a little bigger or whatever. No, but there's nothing recorded of it. God said, do this. Noah said, okay. In 120 years, he came back and said, okay, looks good. Get in. Amen. Think about that walk of faith. How many of you have had a word of the Lord? You know this is what God wants you to do. And you say, okay, I'll do it. And then when God doesn't speak to you the next day or the next week or the next month, you begin to wonder. I won't, you know. and, and people around you will begin to question you. I thought God said. Take, for example, our radio station. I know. God's showing me what this ministry is about to go into. And I've shared it with a few people. And some of them have mocked. Why would God tell you to do that? I don't know. This is what he wants me to do. This is what we're going to do. Well, I don't think you should do that. I think you need to do this over here and kind of what you're doing right now. That's not what God said. Well, that's been two years. Why hasn't it happened yet? I don't know. Noah went 120 years just obeying the last command God had given him. I mean, think about it. They had no rain. They didn't know what rain was. They never had a flood. And here Noah is telling them for 120 years, God's going to send a flood. I'm building this boat. Anybody that helps me build it, they have a little room here and you'll be all right. And they're thinking he's a nut. But he worked every day for 120 years. And then God came back. said, looks good. Get in. There he was, 120 years building this thing with his family. And when God said, get in, he got in. Amen. I think we could assume he was probably a fairly wealthy man. I mean, only a wealthy man could pay for all that wood and the craftsmanship and whatever other things were necessary to, to build this massive boat. We could assume he had great possessions. Probably had great wealth in his town. But when he got into that boat, he turned his back on all of it. He turned his back on everything. Believing with all of his heart, God was going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. 
he was going to absolutely destroy the entire planet. Now there's a beautiful picture here of a sovereign election and volition, how they come together. God promised deliverance to Noah 124 years before Noah chose to enter the ark. But Noah entered, and he entered it willfully, and he entered under the promise of God for the purpose of God. Amen? Why did God save Noah's family? Why them? Well, the end of verse 1. For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Take you back to chapter 6, verse 9. These are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Amen. That's a testimony. Noah believed God. Noah served God. Noah loved God. Noah had been justified. Noah had been covered with the very righteousness of God. Noah and his wife and his three sons and three daughters and lost, they were the only ones, the only ones in the whole world that served God. You say there were none righteous from Adam to Noah. Oh, there were righteous people. They may not have been righteous in the sense that Jesus is righteous and gave his righteousness to us. But listen to me. There were righteous people who served God. There was Enoch, and there were certainly others along the way. We could go back and read through chapters uh, Genesis 4 and 5 and, and look at them. But every one of them died except Enoch, who was translated. Of the living people on the earth, there were only eight People Out of all the people on the earth, only eight people loved God. He was righteous because God had declared him righteous. He was righteous because he had seen himself as a sinner and he turned to God for forgiveness and for mercy. And the evidence of the work of God in his life was that he was blameless in his time and walked with God. He was a true believer. Amen. And so was his family. And his righteous character is remembered here. It's already in chapter 6, verse 9. Why repeat it? It's remembered here because it provides the contrast of the condemnation of the rest of the world. And so he says, it's time to get in. Judgment's coming. It's time to turn your back on the entire world. It's time for you to leave all that you're familiar with, Noah. I told you it's going to happen. And now it is going to happen. And he reiterates and does what God told him 120 years before with some important additions. Verse 2, you should take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his females, and of the animals that are not clean, two, male and his female. Back in chapter 6, you know, when the Lord was talking to him about building the ark in verse 19, he told him to take two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive. Male, female, birds, animals, crawling things of every kind shall come to you so they can be kept alive. And you take in verse 21 the food to provide for them as well. So here God repeats, but he adds something else. It's not in chapter 6. Take with you every clean animal by sevens. So here's the first mention of clean animals in Scripture. 
If you study the Mosaic Law, you get into the book of Exodus, you study the Mosaic Law, study it in Deuteronomy, particularly Leviticus. You know, in Leviticus, you have a whole section, uh, I think it's chapters 11 through 15 of Leviticus, it deals with the clean and the unclean animals. So in the day of Moses, when God gave the ceremonial law to Moses, he detailed at that time this matter of clean and unclean animals. At the same time, God also detailed matters about offerings. Mosaic law is full of details like this. And he also gave details about the issue of sacrifices, blood sacrifices. All kinds of details about how all these sacrifices were to be cared for, how they were to be offered, when they were to be offered, labeling them and assigning them to various days in the calendar and various issues in the life of the nation of Israel. So what you have in the Mosaic Law is sort of a codification of the sacrificial system and the crystallization of all that and the clarification between the clean and the unclean. But mark this, I think all of those things existed before the Mosaic Law because there were sacrifices. You had Cain telling his brother Abel because he was jealous that his brother had made a good sacrifice acceptable in the eyes of God. You have sacrifices at the end of the flood when Noah comes out of the ark and makes a sacrifice. You have sacrifices throughout the pre-Mosaic period being made by the people of God. So it's pretty clear God had revealed to them that there were sacrifices that had to be made. There were no, or, or, there were no, thank you, Jesus. It was a picture of the coming final sacrifice, Jesus himself. God himself even made the first sacrifice in the garden, didn't he? He killed an animal, took the skins and covered his people, Adam and Eve. God was therefore saying, by the death of an innocent substitute, your sin will be covered. Your shame will be covered. So the sacrifices already existed. Offerings already existed. We find Abraham giving tithes and offering to Melchizedek in the book of Genesis long before the Mosaic law is given. And it's also true that the idea of clean and unclean animals existed prior to the instructions in the book of Leviticus. So God had already begun to reveal to his people certain patterns of behavior that he desired for them. The purpose of clean and unclean people often ask is this, what's the purpose for that? Is it because some animals are literally dirtier than others? Does it have to do with health and hygiene? Does it mean some people like to think you can eat certain animals because they carry less disease than certain other animals? No, that's not the primary issue here. It's not about the physiology of an animal primarily. It's really not the issue. There may be some secondary issues there. But that's not the reason God gave the instruction between the clean and unclean animals. Just look at the sacrificial system and ask yourself, did the sacrificial system take away sin? Did offering an animal take away sin? Did offering an animal bring somebody to forgiveness? And it's clear cut, no. No, none of that ever did. 
but it pictured a sacrifice to come that would do that. And all the offerings they made to God did not buy their salvation. Those were, in a sense, depictions of the fact that God wanted their heart and their soul. He wanted all that they were given to him. These were ways in which he could demonstrate their yieldness, their submission to him. Even the clean and unclean was symbolic. The sacrificial system was symbolic. The offering system was symbolic. All the matters of the ceremonial law were symbolic. And the clean and the unclean animals were symbolic of the fact that, uh, here's something I want you to think about, God wanted his people to learn to make distinctions between good and bad. Just as the Lord was saying to them, I want you to learn to separate my ways from all other ways. So from the very start, God taught his people there was his way and there was another way. And it had to do with your sacrifices to train you in that. It had to do with your offerings to train you with that. It had to do with your diets to train you with that. The common matters of daily life you needed to learn and the commonest things of life you needed to learn God's way. To obey God with no more reason than because he said to do it. We do that with our kids sometimes, don't we? I remember telling my kids, you know, I tell them to do something or stop doing something. I say, why? You don't need to know why. Just do what I said. Amen. Don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. Nobody else does it. Why do I have to do it, Dad? Nobody else, or no, nobody else does it that way. Well, that's all the more reason for you to do it then, isn't it? You're not like everybody else. I remember telling my family, our family's not like everybody else's family. We're different. We don't do what everybody else does. We don't live like anybody else does. Sometimes you have to teach your children that not by a profound sort of esoteric theological lecture, but just by teaching them to make decisions distinctive in their behavior. Amen. The diary laws, those laws that came down to the clean and unclean, were really to teach separation. From the Garden of Eden with its two trees, one allowed, one forbidden, to the eternal destiny of a human being in heaven or in hell, the Bible sets forth two and only two ways, God's way and every other way. This distinction is made all the way through Scripture. People are either saved or lost. They're going to heaven or going to hell. They belong to God or they belong to the devil. They follow God or they follow the devil. There is the mountain of blessing and the mountain of cursing. The narrow way and the wide way. Eternal life and eternal destruction. There are those who are against who are those who for. Those within, those without. Death and truth. Life, falsehood, good, bad, light, darkness, kingdom of God, kingdom of Satan, love, hate, spiritual wisdom, wisdom of the world. We have to make distinctions. And in the ABCs, in the early days of God dealing with men, he wanted them to be, he wanted them to learn and discriminate the different kinds of people who made these distinctions. To teach them there was his way, they need to learn to make that distinction so they can make the decision 
to do it God's way. And that's why they're given these laws. And they were really only temporary laws. Well, how do you know that, Brother Bob? Because when you come to the 10th chapter of Acts in the New Testament, there's a great passage, verses 9 through 16, in which God cancels all of the clean and unclean laws. What? Yeah, you don't remember that? Peter goes to sleep. Then he has a vision. He sees this sheet. And on the sheet, there's all these animals, clean and unclean, from the Jewish distinction. Do you remember what the Lord said to him? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter was paralyzed. I mean, his whole life, he'd been told things you could not eat because they're unclean. Remember what the Lord said to him? Don't you dare call unclean what God has cleansed for those that are lost. Then you come to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, where the Apostle Paul says, Everything is to be received with thanksgiving. Amen. So, the, I mean, you can still have your pork ribs, honey child. All right? Still chow down on them ribs and pork chops. Glory to God. <coughs> Excuse me another minute. So these were never sort of mandatory kind of hygienic laws. They were never in themselves some level of morality, nor are the animals to be distinguished as if the unclean animals are in some way inferior to the clean animals because you'll have to be reminded here that on the ark, you had clean and unclean animals. God saved both kinds. Both kinds manifest the wonder and glory of his mind and creation. He says, take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male with his females. And the best understanding of that is that the reason he wants pairs of the clean animals, and Noah must have known what they were, because we aren't told what they were. We don't get a code about that until we get to Moses. But they said, but just the Lord must have revealed the sacrificial standard to Cain and Abel. He must have revealed it also at some point to Noah, what the clean animals were and the unclean. And he says, take seven pairs of the clean animals. And the best understanding for this reason of this comes to chapter 8, verse 20. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. After Noah comes out of the ark, he built an altar to the Lord. And he took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now we know what the clean animals were for. And that economy, the clean animals, were the ones that God designated to be used for what? Sacrifice. Amen? And since when they came out of the ark, they were going to be making sacrifices to God, to God as a regular expression. If they, had, if they didn't have those extra animals, they would have wiped out the whole species. Understand now? If you only have two and you burn up Papa... There's not going to be any more. It's just mama. So there had to be some animals who were expendable. They were the ones designated as a clean offering, set apart for sacrifice. And had Noah not taken those extra pairs, he would have literally exterminated the entire species as he offered sacrifices. Remember when they came off the ark? It would take a while for animals to reproduce. And they wanted to be making sacrifices regularly. By the way, none of these animals were for eating since everyone was a vegetarian until after the flood. 
It's not until chapter 9, verse 3 and 4, that the Lord gives the command for them to eat meat. So he didn't take seven pairs, as some have suggested. They took seven pairs so they could have some meat along the way. No, they were vegetarian. Really, as most commentators would agree, the classical Jewish commentators, even Old and New Testament commentators in the Western world, would agree that that's the purpose for the animals, as sacrifices, not for food. Now, it's interesting to me, maybe not to you, but it is to me, that this distinction between the clean and non-clean animals uh, was clear to those that study God's Word. One of the things that fascinates me is that when you study literature outside of the Old Testament, you get into Babylonian literature or Assyrian literature and commentaries outside the Old Testament. It's quite fascinating to find out that they even had ideas about this. The Babylonians and the Assyrians, as a rule, brought sacrifices to their deities only from their herds and flocks, their cattle and sheep. And very rare instances, maybe a mountain goat. If they ever sacrificed a pig, Babylonians and Assyrians, pagans, if they ever sacrificed a pig or dog, dogs were always considered to be unclean. So were the pigs. If they ever did it according to their own literature, they were not offering to their gods. They were giving gifts to demons. Or they would sacrifice a dog or a pig to serve as a substitute for a sick person. So that sick person's sickness would go into the dog or the pig and die. So they were always used in very negative ways. Even the Babylonians and Assyrians got a little bit of the spillover about what good and clean animals were for. I know it's hard for you to think of your little dog as being unclean. There isn't anything about the animal itself that puts it in that category. Okay, These were distinctions God made with his people to teach them and to be discriminating and discerning. And among the Babylonians and the Assyrians, I read that uh, if by chance a dog entered one of the temples of the great gods, the entire temple had to be cleansed because a dog had gotten in there. So there were these distinctions between clean and unclean animals. The Lord said, take those animals for the purposes of sacrifice. Now, at the end of verse 3, uh, I mean, verse 2, he says, And of the animals that are not clean, okay, just the rest of the animals that would not be used for sacrifice, that was the distinction, take a male and a female. A male and female for obvious reasons, amen? You go over to chapter 8, verse 17, when they got out of the ark. It says, Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that's with, with, uh, that is with you. Bring birds and animals, every creeping thing, every crawling thing that crawls on the earth that they may breed abundantly on the earth. Be fruitful, multiply on the earth. That was the reason they needed to be male and female, so they could come out and begin reproducing. Amen. Verse 3 then adds, And also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female. Again, those birds that were designated as clean here. That perhaps is this time here all birds were designated as clean. Although later in the Mosaic Law, there were some flying animals that were designated as being unclean. At this point, the birds were included with the clean animals, though. Amen. Now, all of them, as I said, preserve for the obvious reason to keep, end of verse 3, offspring alive on the face of all the earth. God's just going to destroy the surface of the earth. He's going to destroy the planet. He's going to destroy everything that lives on the planet. 
There's going to be a new earth. There's going to be new humanity. There's going to be a new animal kingdom and a new plant world as well. I may add something here that I think is kind of important. To keep offspring alive on the face of the earth, what does he tell you? It tells you that if Noah got on a boat and did not take anybody, there wouldn't be anything left on the earth. What does that tell you? He tells you that without question, this is a global flood. I'm amazed and maybe even a little perplexed when a, you know you could read five or six evangelical commentators who try to convince the readers of the books that this was a local flood, localized in the area. This flood just kind of happened around where Noah lived. And he just scooped up a few of the animals and sort of chased them in the ark and that this is all sort of a legendary description of what really amounted to a local flood. And that's not what the language indicates. It's very, very obvious what you have here. How could you have a local flood, by the way, where the water was higher than a 17,000-foot mountain? That would have to have walls of water to say nothing of many other issues. The point that is being made at the end of verse 3 is that if you don't do this, then the offspring are not going to be alive on the face of the earth. There isn't going to be any animal population if you don't take the animals. I know somebody may be thinking, you know, was there any reproduction going on in the ark for the entire year that they were on board the ark? Well, you could assume there's maybe some. They had plenty of room for expansion, as I pointed out. But the real replenishing occurred once they got off. Now, some of you suggested... And all the animals hibernated for a year. No, the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say they were non-reproductive during the year either. It's been suggested that food was taken on the board to feed them at the front end and not distributed through the year. They all ate a lot and then knocked out by divine anesthetic or something and stayed in hibernation until the ark finally rested and then they got up and left. Bible doesn't say that. Doesn't say anything about that. So we don't need to speculate on it either. Amen. We do know that the Lord said if you don't take them, there isn't going to be any future for the animal kingdom. Now I want to digress here for a second because you need to understand this. Those of you who are thinking ahead or thinking scientifically about this may ask the question, well, there's so many so many animals in the world right now, right? How do you get them all on the ark? That's one of the arguments you hear from people who want to say that this was a localized flood because there's so many, so many different species of animals all over the world that they couldn't have all been on the ark. Well, that's not true. Let me point this out as well. I did once in a prior program a long time ago, but I'm going to say it here. To show you all the animals that are all over the planet today could come from this group that's on the ark. Amen. I want to show you this. God did not place all the animals in the world today. All the animals that are either extinct or alive. He did not put them all on there. He did not put uh, 52 varieties of dogs, for example. Two dogs could do it. But in the species pair, God preserved all of the genetic material 
to produce all the animals that ever lived, whether they're extinct or still alive since the flood. And it only took two dogs, let's say, to provide all the genetic material for all the dogs that have ever lived. If you're struggling with this, just think about this. All the human beings that have ever lived came from Adam and Eve. In fact, they came from one other couple as well, Noah and Mrs. Noah. Amen? Everybody on earth came from Noah and Mrs. Noah. All the genetic material is there. The whole of genetics is so amazing, staggering, really, and fascinating. These genes can be put into varying combinations and various mutations occur and adaptations occur so that all the animals of the world that have ever been since the flood can come from two species. <coughs> Excuse me a second. Now, if you want a better understanding of that, just think like this. Mr. and Mrs. Noah produced everybody on earth. From pygmies and dwarfs to seven-foot-tall NBA players and Zulus and everybody in between. They came from Mr. and Mrs. Noah, came all skin colors in the earth, all physical characteristics, all body types, eye shapes, noses, eye colors, all hair colors. Do you understand? At least natural hair colors. Hey, man. <laughs> hey, man, don't, oh, don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. Do you understand that all the genetic coding, it's an amazing thing, all of the genetic coding, all of it was in two people. And the combinations multiplied by each new union without limit. To show you how limitless it really is, it's pretty staggering to me. It's kind of fun for me to poke around in the scientific journals because I'm not used to doing it. But this is something I found that I thought was interesting. Scientists have estimated that, in theory, if just two human parents could produce more children than there are atoms in the universe, no two would be alike. Really? That's amazing. We all know about fingerprints, right? Identical twins really are not identical. They got separate fingerprints and separate DNA. And the variability is absolutely staggering. So, as animals and people, two animals of a species mated and reproduced, and then variations began to appear. And then some mutations as well. Everything tends to mutate down. I mean, it, it, as time goes on, that's what puts a flaw in this theory of evolution. Evolution, and it never gets better, it gets worse. Amen? Everything tends to go down, not up. We don't have better dogs today than the two that were on the ark. We have worse dogs today. In theory, a horse is inferior, sheep inferior, birds inferior. What was existing then, because when there is an, an anomaly, there's a variation or a mutation. It goes down, not up. You cannot get added information. You can only have information somehow harmed or rendered impotent. So you have the varying kinds of animals and mating and mating and people and mating and mating. Then there are certain climates that they find themselves in. And what happens if you have a short-haired dog and a long-haired dog and they wander up to Siberia? Guess what? 
few hundred years, you're going to find Siberia with only long-haired dogs. Why? Did they adapt to their climate and become long-haired? No. They were long-haired dogs when they got there, but the dogs with no hair died. That's adaptation. Dead dogs don't reproduce too well, do they? They died. And it's even true, and this is fascinating to study, if you go into warm parts of the world, and for the most part as a general rule, people have darker skin in the hotter parts of the world. Why is that? That isn't because their body evolved into that. It's because darker-skinned people flourished there, while pale-skinned people were contracting skin cancers and melanoma and things like that, and they tend to die off. But it's pretty amazing to think of the genetics and how this whole world of humanity and you and I do what we do. Next time you go to the airport, just sit and look at the different people and think how God ever did this. And then say, God must have a sense of humor. Nobody, nobody can make people look like this and not have a sense of humor. Amen. This is amazing. God absolutely has an infinite need for variety, doesn't he? God hates clones. It's the individual that appeals to him. Amen. All this variety operates out of this one gene pool. Created in Adam, then expounded on again in Noah, plus all the defective genes causing all the mutations of the people. So let me tell you something. Just keep this in mind. You hear all about race relations today. You want to know something? I can settle it real easy. There's only one race on the earth. One race. Period. Mankind. We're it. And everyone's in it. There is not more than one race. There is one race. Let me prove my point. The difference in genetics between any two people in the world. Pick any two. You and the person next to you. The difference in genetics, even if you're a twin from the same family, the same group, is 0.2. That's the difference. All of your genetics is the same except two tenths. And you can even take it a little further. You can look at racial characteristics, skin color, features, eye shape, is 6% of that 0.02 variation, or 0.012. That's trivial. We are all one race. You say, well, I have dark skin. Oh, a lot of people have dark skin. A lot of people have light skin. Some people just have more melanin than others. But there are still people, humans, there's just one race. And I feel really bad talking about these races and we need racial reconciliation. What is that? You have to love everyone, Jesus said. I don't have to accept your race. You're me. You're my race. We are human beings. The difference is culture. Okay, now I can understand that. I can't make you fit easily into my culture if you have been raised your whole life in a different culture. I understand that. It's not a race issue. It's a culture issue. We're all one race. We were all one race on the ark, weren't we? All one family. And we got really big. But we're still one family. Every person that has ever lived on this earth since the flood came from Noah 
and one of his three sons. Glory to God. In fact, you might think I'm stretching a little bit. I know I need a Bible verse because you want to hold me to it. Okay, Acts 17 says this. Acts 17, verse 26. And he made, he made one. Most manuscripts, King James says, one blood, one DNA, one set of genetic materials. He made from one every what? Nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. You say, well, how do we get all split up then? Well, well, I'll get to that. One blood, one DNA, one set of genetic material. He made from one every what? Nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. You say, well, how do we get so split up then? Okay, let's get into that. It's called the Tower of Babel. You remember that story, right? Let's not talk about race. Let's try to be loving and understand about culture. So it was enough to have two of anything on the ark that would supply all the necessary genetic material to repopulate the whole earth with everything that's ever lived here in the animal kingdom as well as the human world. And 4,500 years have gone by. And the curse has been operating as well. And through that curse, there's been mutations as well as adaptations. Certain amount of genetic information has been lost. So disease has developed. Deformity in the genes has caused much of it. No process can add new information. No recovery is possible. Humanity has been declining in its function and in its form. We probably aren't even close at all to what Mr. and Mrs. Noah looked like and what their families looked like. And we certainly want to be, would not be close to what Adam and Eve were. No way. They were perfect. Genesis says that God seen it all and said it's perfect. It's good. There was everything necessary in that representation of life on the ark to populate the entire planet again. My goodness, we're running out of time. So in verse 4, Noah's told why he needs to get on board. Get into the ark. They called the animals for, verse 7, After seven more days, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And I'll blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I've made. One week. One week. Isn't that interesting? Do you remember even at the end of the age when the Lord Jesus comes, there's a seven-year period called the tribulation. The final preliminary to the great judgment of the return of Jesus Christ who destroys all the ungodly at the end of that seven-year period. Well, the Lord gave seven days here. Some commentators suggest those seven days were for the mourning of the death of Methuselah, but we don't know when Methuselah died. There's nothing here about that. Others have suggested it was for God to mourn for seven days because seven days of mourning was maybe traditional. God needed to mourn the world, the death of the world for seven days. There's nothing in the Bible about that. No doubt it was seven days. It was seven days summoning the last opportunity. Seven days to make final preparations to get on board. Seven days to preach the gospel of grace one more time, one more week, one more day. I think whatever kind of preacher Noah might have been, he probably got cranked up, amen, in enthusiasm in his last week. I'm telling you, people not only saw it coming, but it's coming at the end of the week. And nobody listened. <clears throat> and we'll just look at verse 4. He says, I'll send rain on the earth. And somebody might say at that time, what's that? What's rain? 120 years before, God said, I'm bringing a flood of water. 
There's going to be a flood. Here it's called rain. Now, we understand rain. We know exactly what rain is. But it's very likely they didn't because if you go back to chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, it says, When God created before the, before the fall, of course, and the wonder of the pristine new earth, no shrub of the earth was yet in the field. No plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth. There was no man to cultivate the ground. Mist used to rise up from the earth and water the surface of the ground. In the original creation, there was no rain. Plenty of water, but it rose up from the earth. It says a mist. Really, a better way to translate that is a, a spring or a flow. It's ebb in Hebrew. It means water gushing up from the ground. Rain didn't come from the top. It came from the ground, which is much more way efficient. Is a much more efficient way to water. If you've been a very sophisticated, beautiful park, or if you've been in a sophisticated golf course, you know they got underground watering systems that waters the roots instead of dropping water on top of the ground, which softens the surface. Sometimes it isn't as efficient. And that's the way the original world was created. There was a spring. And there was gushing springs coming up from under the ground. No rain. No weeds. That's what those words mean. Shrub and plant. There were no weeds. There were no crops. He didn't need crops. He didn't need to plow. Amen. Go back to chapter 7. Something's going to change here because God says, I'm going to send rain on the earth. Well, this is something new. There's never been rain before. Water doesn't come down in the ancient world. It comes up from the ground and flourishes the ground. I think weeds came up after the curse when the crops were planted and the water was still available in the sorry, in the soil. Anyway, what happens here, I think, constitutes the shattering of the earth. The crust of the earth letting loose on the surface of the earth all the reservoir of water that up till this point had been under the, the, the crust, under the surface. And a cataclysmic convulsion sent seeds, the water into the air and creates this great deluge that essentially drowns the earth 40 days and 40 nights of horrendous rain. So in the original hydrology report, if you want to call it that, it's very different than what we know now. We understand the movement of water. It's the ocean is evaporating in the clouds. The clouds carry it across the land and it's dropped on the land in the form of rain. It runs into the streams, it goes into the rivers, and then back into the ocean. And that's the cycle, the hydraulical cycle. By the way, it's explained in intimate, careful details in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. Job talks about it in chapter 28, 24, 26. And Chapter 36, 26 to 29. A couple other places, Ecclesiastes and Psalms, talk about the cycle. But what makes this hydrological cycle work is wind. Evaporation occurs, it's captured in the clouds, the wind blows it across the land, and it's dropped on the land. Cycle goes like that. Just, I mean, you learn that in elementary school. In the ancient world, you didn't have any pattern of wind. And this kind of water above this canopy described in Genesis 1. You have water below, you have a complete, completely different atmospheric situation. No rainfall in the original earth. And it's likely there was no rainfall until the flood, when it says the Lord broke up the pattern of all that creation. We'll look at that next week. Let's go back for me at the moment to verse 4 as we get ready to close here. It says, For seven more days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land, every living thing I've made. I think it's important here 
uh, at this particular point say, God never, ever, ever resists taking full responsibility for judgment. God says, I. He doesn't expect us to get him off the hook. There always seems to be an effort made to sort of get God off the hook for judgment or for holocaust or for devastation. The critics of the world say, what kind of God would do that? What kind of God would destroy the children of Israel? What kind of God would destroy the Egyptian army? What kind of God would drown the whole world? What kind of God would send a hurricane or a tornado or a flood? What kind of God would do that? We scramble and, well, you know, we sort of live like we need to defend God. God doesn't need to be defended by us. God doesn't need... He doesn't resist taking responsibility for judgment. He doesn't expect us to get him off the hook. He doesn't expect us to develop some kind of heresy like the openness theology, which says God essentially is not responsible in anything. In fact, doesn't even know that is going on until he sees it just like you do and then says, oh my, and then tries to sort of, no. That kind of theology developed because people are trying to get God off the hook from the judgments that occur in the world where here we see God accepts and acknowledges he's the one that's responsible for them. God is the executioner. It was the Lord back in chapter 6, verse 6, that was sorry that he made man. It was the Lord back in verse 7 that I'm going to blot man out whom I've created. He doesn't hesitate to accept responsibility. It's a lesson for you. In chapter 7, verse 23, it says, Thus he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the land. In fact, just the opposite. God wants it crystal clear. He wants everyone to know he is judge and executioner. We'll try and get through this here real quick. I will send rain. Natar. It's a word referring to normal rain. Not a torrential downpour. Just normal rain. But it came for 40 days and 40 nights. By the time you get down to verse 12, it's a different word. Now it's the Hebrew word geseum. And it means a torrent. Because after 40 days and 40 nights, what started out as rain becomes a deluge, a torrential downpour. In fact, the word rain there is used in a couple of places. In 1 Kings 18, Ezekiel 13, speaks of a rushing torrent. Now, it would be impossible for that to happen under current climatological conditions. Okay, It's just not going to happen. Uh, to imagine it did cover the whole earth higher than the mountains that were nearly 20,000 feet high. You have to have an incredibly different scenario that we can't even imagine it. And we got to close. But we're talking about something different. We're going to get into that next time, okay? But if what we've gone over today, if you had your eyes open, your spirit touched, Holy Spirit's drawing you to what I believe He intended today, pray this prayer with me so you don't have to go around through the next cleansing of the world. Just pray this prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, I accept the salvation that Jesus bought for me. I accept it in the name of Jesus. And I thank you for washing away my sins, giving to me a new life in Christ Jesus. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed, folks, in all that you do. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher, Robert Thibodeau, with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. 
That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's FTFM.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.